Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I am Jonah Gula. Um, today, Mariana is not with me. She is in Patagonia doing squirrel suit diving off of mountains. Um, just kidding. <laughs> She's like visiting family or visiting with family. Um, but in her absence, um, we have our friend Camden Martin, who I met at school and who's one of my other favorite people to talk wildlife with. And I'm excited to have him on the episode today. So welcome, Camden. Thank you very much, Jonah, for having me join um, Conservation Chronicles. I've been very excited since the first moment I heard you and Mariana mention about it. So very happy to participate with you guys today. Uh, do you want to tell them a little bit about how we met, just briefly? Yeah, sure. Um, so Jonah and I uh, first met back in, um, I think it would, would have been, what, uh, fall of 2014, um, back at Unity College. Um, you know, f- within the first day or two, I was sent to go and visit Jonah and uh, George Matula in regards to the bear study. And then I kind of just asked you a few questions, and I was like, what's your favorite animals? And you were like, well, ungulates. And I'm like, oh, me too. And then you're like, segas. And I was like, oh, that's me. And and then George was going, you know, he was kind of putting his hand in his head and was kind of curious, you know, was like, what are they talking about? And since then, I think we've been inseparable pretty much. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Do you want to tell them a little bit um, about your background as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so from Maine, uh, from Auburn, Maine, um, I had gone to school in France in high school and then came back. Um, I decided to go to Unity College for my passion in wildlife. Uh, that's when I had met Jonah. And then further on, I kind of heard of an opportunity to go study wildlife and environmental science in Quebec. And I, so I ended up actually moving to Quebec and, and doing my diploma there. Um, I just graduated with a diploma in environmental science and uh, with a specialty on protection. So everything with contamination, um, uh, you know, remediation, uh, phase one reports, phase two reports, these kinds of things. Um, so, yeah. Kind of in that, but uh, definitely uh, for those who are curious, my big passion is definitely ungulates and carnivores, and especially uh, historical um, zoo zoo geography. Uh, so you know, animals that used to live in historical places uh, is something that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I think we will probably eventually do an episode on historical ecology because I know you and I both like that, and I know Mary Mariana is really into that. Um, so maybe we'll do an episode on that in the future. Anyways, I would be really exciting to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it it would be a great topic to cover. Um, so why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today? Um, but before we do that, I want to ask you a question. When you think of seals, what area of the world do you normally think of? Hmm. Well, you know. I probably would think, you know, anything with, uh, especially coming from New England and Maine area, you know, like harbor seals, but definitely seals in the, you know, closer getting to the poles, um, you know, uh, northern elephant seals, uh, definitely colder, you know, regime, temperature regimes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, towards the poles, you know, colder environments, even Arctic environments. Um, For sure, yeah. Generally speaking, that is the case um, when we're talking about earless seals, which are in the family Fossidae. However, there are three species of earless seals that occur in the tropics, um, and they are called monk seals. And do you want to give us a little overview of the three species of monk seals? 
Yeah, sure. So um, for those who are curious, where did monk seals get their name? Um, they're actually named monk because of the folds of skin around their head and neck. They kind of resemble uh, resemble a monk's cowl. Um, and they're also generally alone or in small groups, kind of like what monks, you know, do in small monasteries and whatnot. So that's pretty interesting. Um, so like Jonah alluded to, we do have three monk seals. Um, unfortunately, one has gone extinct, and that was the uh, Caribbean monk seal. Um, so kind of like the name hints to uh, it was you know located uh, from the Bahamas to the Yucatan Peninsula uh, throughout different islands in the Caribbean um, and even I think into the northern shores of Colombia unfortunately uh, the last confirmed sighting was back in 1952 somewhere between somewhere between um, Jamaica and Nicaragua uh, the next um, monk seal is the Mediterranean probably the most well-known monk seal uh, definitely because it's an old world species um, they are very endangered with about I think it's somewhere between 350 and 450 mature individuals in the wild. Um, they're definitely found around in the uh, around Greece and the Aegean Sea, uh, close to Turkey, Crete, in that area. Um, I actually was just you know reading this last night when I was catching up on the material. Uh, the monk, uh, Mediterranean monks even used to live on the southern coast of France, not too far from Marseille, uh, all the way into the 1930s. So that's pretty interesting to think about these colonies of monk seals and you know highly populated areas. Um, and then the other populations of monk seals can actually um, range all the way to uh, the Mauritanian coast. Uh, that's probably the last uh, real stronghold population, if you will. And then, of course, the subject, uh, the, our main topic today will uh, is the Hawaiian monk seal. Uh, actually, one of only two native uh, mammals in the Hawaiian Islands uh, with the hoary bat. Uh, so that's something I learned is there was only two native species to Hawaii. Yeah, you think of... Well, there's obviously currently a lot of mammals in Hawaii, but you don't realize that so many of them, all but two, are not native. Um, you know, you think of like mongoose or, or wild boar, obviously they're not native and they're invasive, but all these other species that you, you don't really think about. And it makes sense because the Hawaiian archipelago is so far out there um, in the middle of the Pacific. And Hawaii is only looking at about... 1,000, about 1,200 uh, in the wild, and only about 632 individuals, so they are definitely endangered. Um, so, can you, Jonah, could you explain us a little bit what they look like besides their fold? Uh, the, um, how big do they get? Um, the Hawaiian monk seal, which its Latin name is Neomonicus Shanslandi, something like that. Um, they are about... Hopefully there's no Latin professors listening to us. I'm sure you could look up the pronunciation of it online. Um, but they get between... They reach length between 2.1 and 2.4 meters, or 7 to 8 feet long. And they weigh 170 to 240 kilograms, or 375 to 535 pounds. Um, and they look, I mean, sort of like... A normal seal. They're very uh, silvery and, and shiny, and I I don't really see the the folds of skin around their head like like you described, and that's what that's how they are described, and that's why they're named monk seal. But right, it must be when they arch their heads, I bet, or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, I, I guess so. Um, but I I think that probably just their antisocial behavior is a better reason for them to be called monk seals. Um, and they've historically been found throughout most of the islands in the Hawaiian archipelago. Um, 
Seal bones have been found on the island of Hawaii dating back to between 1400 and 1760. And on the main islands, they probably recently in history weren't that common. They probably occurred in lower numbers just because there was a higher presence of humans after um, Polynesians colonized the islands. And when you get up into the 19th century, that's when a lot of hunting and intensive hunting really for their meat oil and skins started to happen um, and I found this kind of occurrence all over North America at that point yeah yeah basically yeah market hunting um, and in a three and a half month period in 1859 I read that one captain returned to Honolulu with 1500 monk seal skins which is more than the modern day population <laughs> wow that's just, that's crazy. Um, in a three and a half month period, imagine just wiping out the entire modern day population. Um, so they, they, you know, during the 19th century, their populations declined drastically because of that market hunting. And then during World War II, um, the U.S. military was based in some of the islands in the northwestern part of the archipelago, including Midway and Laysan Atolls. And they hunted them there as well. I'm not sure. I, I didn't read if it was just for sport or for food. Um, or a combination I, 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 of the two. Yeah, I think market hunting was pretty much had winded down at that point in history. So I don't know if they were necessarily hunting them for their meat, oil, and skin. But um, I'm not sure if anyone knows about that. We'd like to hear from you. Um, but so during the 19th century and up to World War II, this, this extreme decline created this population bottleneck, which is basically where the, the population becomes extremely small and they start to experience um, low genetic diversity. And in fact, actually, the, the Hawaiian monk seal has the lowest genetic diversity of any pinniped, um, which are seals and sea lions and walrus. So let me get this straight. Are you saying that there's a lot of Uncle Father Hawaiian monk seals out there? <laughs> uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, because of that bottleneck, because the population became so small that the genetic pool was just, it, it shrank to where, yeah, there was a lot of inbreeding and there's a lot of Uncle Fathers. <laughs> I don't know about today. It's probably not as bad as like in World War II, but that's exactly what the cases. Um, and then in 1976, the species was listed as endangered on the Endangered Species Act, and they've had protection um, ever since then. So do you want to tell us where exactly um, Hawaiian monk seals are found in the archipelago? Sure. Now you're going to make me have to pronounce that difficult. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, so they found definitely primarily in the northwest, um, um, northern islands, northwestern islands of um, Hawaii, uh, especially in the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument that was actually put together, I think, underneath the Bush administration. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah, um, it was. In 2006, he established that. 2006, that's right. Um, so these islands are, um, they comprise about eight subpopulations in the northwestern islands. Um, then actually, there's actually even an occupancy on the main islands um, that has actually increased since the 1990s. Um, there's even now a breeding record on uh, each main island, and each main island is considered one subpopulation. So 
it's you know it's pretty uh, it's hitting in a nice good trend at this point hope you know with best hopes actually i think um, i think that the entire chain of the main islands is considered one subpopulation because they move between like individuals move between the islands true, so yeah. readily so that's you have eight true. subpopulations in the northwestern islands and then the main islands is the ninth subpopulation the yeah, subpopulation that's correct yeah um where what kind of habitat are we talking with these guys so um kind of like a lot of pinnipans they do spend a lot of time in the water um and the hawaiian monk seal actually spends about two-thirds of their life in the water so you know definitely pretty uh not wrinkly you know if we were to do the same we definitely come <laughs> out with some pretty interesting prune looking <laughs> shapes they're nice and um, smooth but it's not their case this nice and smooth yeah I bet the skin, you know, spin uh, the skin um, lotion company should definitely look into that. You know, something they could look into <laughs> for people that want to spend two thirds of their life in water. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That, but they don't have wrinkles, though. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, finally. Um, so, all jokes aside, um, in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, um, they definitely uh, like to spend a lot of time in the forge within the atolls. So, the, for our listeners who aren't uh, um, aware of what an atoll is, it's a geomorphological um, phenomenon where uh, an extinct uh, volcano has left this kind of ring-shaped reef or island, kind of. Um, so they spend a lot of time there, uh, generally in shwa- shallow waters as well, surrounding these atolls and islands, and sometimes they'll, and then on offshore as well, in submerged banks and in reefs. So they spend a lot of their time um, for those northwestern islands, and then on the main islands, uh, they stay within about fifty kilometers of the shore, no deeper than about two hundred meters, I would want to say. Um, and even though some 550 meters dives have, uh, been recorded in the Northwestern islands, um, you know, like a lot of pinnipeds, they generally just, uh, favor undisturbed beaches for resting and raising pups, which makes a lot of sense. Um, they also, they also enjoy sandy beaches. <laughs> we have <laughs> with, so much in uh, common. <laughs> that's right. Uh, sandy beaches with shallow and sheltered water. And this is definitely preferred for pupping. And also, so not only do they occupy this habitat, they're also doing a lot of uh, hunting as well. And so their diet is usually comprised of fish, even including eels, um, a lot of crustaceans, mollusks, and even my favorite of invertebrates, squids and octopus. So I could talk a little about cephalopods. <laughs> and this is generally around the reefs and flats that they'll find their prey. So Ooh, with all that yummy. food, what are they doing? Um, yeah, so basically they are just always fattening up. Um, we'll talk a little bit about reproduction now because that's what females do. Basically, they fatten up and then they mate and then they have babies and then they fatten up and they mate and it's just an endless cycle, like most animals. Um, but for the Hawaiian monk seal, they breeding can occur, can occur year-round. Um, however, the majority of births are between February and August, but pups can be born at any time of the year. Um, and, you know, we're going to make, make some generalizations here as we're talking about reproduction, but actually research has shown that reproductive rates vary between different areas. So between the Northwestern islands, between the main islands, even between different islands in the Northwestern island. Um, so for example, on Laysan Island, which is in the Northwestern part of the archipelago, Females reach sexual maturity at two to four years old, while in other studied areas on other islands, females reach maturity at five to nine years old. So for, for pinnipeds, normally sexual maturity is, 
coincides with, you know, reaching a certain body size. So once they get this big, then they're able to mate. Um, and that's the same thing for Hawaiian monk seals. And so that shows that on Laysan Island, where they're reaching sexual maturity a few years earlier, that there's probably better habitat. Um, pups are just getting better nutrition there. And that's why they're being, that's why they're reaching sexual maturity earlier. Um, age of maturity in males isn't known just because females are the ones that are mostly studied because they're the ones that are, um, you know, they're the most important part of the population because they're the ones that are producing and helping the population to grow. Um, however, just based on male size and behavior, they probably have, they probably have a similar age of sexual maturity. Um, and do you want to tell us about, um, more about mating? About the deed? <laughs> exactly. uh, um, so, um, you know, as like a lot of pinnipeds, um, well, actually, that's a little bit different, but mating actually occurs in the water. Uh, sometimes it can be on the beach for other pinnipeds. Um, so it's a little bit difficult to evaluate how successful, you know, reproduction is. So um, researchers even go to say that male reproductive success is actually unknown at this point. So something else to look um, into to, you know, further uh, research about um, but on the contrary it is has it has been observed that um, when males mount females in the water uh, the male will generally bite her on the neck and usually will leave injuries um, and so this is actually kind of used as an indication that the males have the other females have you know been bred you know mated with um, so it kind of gives an indication of you know how many uh, females are breeding at that point. So it's a pretty interesting. Then again, you know, there is a little bit of variability, you know, it depends on how, you know, it's not every male is going to bite or every bite is going to leave a mark or something like that. So there's a little bit of variability, but that's kind of something that they're going upon right now. That's what a lot of the papers were mentioning. Um, sometimes during the mating season, a lot of male, multiple males will fight, um, with each other, uh, with the right for the right to be able to mate with a female. Um, unfortunately, sometimes during these kind of um, um, in, uh, interspecific uh, combats, if you will, between uh, males, females will be even killed or even mortally injured during these conflicts. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, pups that are nearby might get um, also be. Um, receiving a lot of recently wean pups in particular are usually the targets of a lot of this kind of single male aggression um, and therefore this has actually kind of skewed the male sex ratio in the northwest islands and has actually created a problem for uh, pup survival um, and you know it's it's pretty significant because you know we have to think of these are insular species you know species that live on an island and you know species that we've mentioned before in the podcast species that are from islands are usually generally more susceptible to you know to change and therefore can dramatically change the population dynamics. So this is definitely something to, you know, uh, that we'll be mentioning a little bit further on in their conservation. Um, so just keep that in mind, listeners. Um, so continuing on, uh, females usually give uh, birth on secluded and sandy beaches to a single pup, generally weighing around 17 kilos, so about 35 to 40 pounds, um, which is pretty, you know, pretty good size. Um, as in common with other earless seals, um, other fossidates, females will actually fast and remain with the pup on the beach during the nursing period, which is in that fasting period, which is about five to six weeks, something that I did, was not aware about. How about you, Jonah? Yeah, I I don't, I guess I really don't know that much about pinnipeds, um, but that's a really long time to go without eating. 
which is why when they're, you know, the period leading up to breeding, they are, they're just eating a lot to build up enough fat so that they can go for five to six weeks without eating and be able to produce milk, um, which is pretty, pretty amazing um, for them to be able to do that. Um, yeah, physiologically speaking, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we should also say that they have a gestation period of 10 to 11 months, so it's pretty long. Um, so, you know, these females are investing a lot, a lot into raising a pup, um, not only in the gestation period, but also that really stressful time when they're hanging out on the beach. Uh, like what, it's really interesting that they do that. Like they just lay there for five to six weeks and do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Huh? That's a good it diet, sound, huh? Fast. It sounds like some people's dream up. come true though. I personally can't sit on a beach for more than 20 minutes without getting antsy. Like, I need to do something, <laughs> let yeah, alone for five to six weeks. Check out the tidal pools or anything like that. Oh, I'm the same way. I can't. Yeah. Um, so what, is their, what does the nursing period look like? Um, yeah, so, the, so they're nursing for five to six weeks, and generally during this period, mothers are intolerant of other adults, um, even other mothers with pups. However, you know, sometimes they there just ends up being more than one nursing female on a beach. And it appears that females can't distinguish their own pups from other pups as long as the pups are, you know, similar age and size. And so this leads to a lot of pup switching occurring um, just because they can't tell the difference between their pup and another female's. And sometimes even when a female loses her pup or her pup dies, you know, Depending, the situation has to arise, but she will adopt another female's pup and, and will foster it, thinking that it's her own. Um, so that's kind of interesting. I didn't, I don't know why they wouldn't be able to recognize their own pups. But again, because they're generally antisocial, they're not, this probably doesn't happen a whole lot because they're trying to be on a beach by themselves and they're intolerant of other mothers. Um, but when pup switching occurs or when fostering, when fostering occurs, um, it doesn't appear that this type of behavior affects the first year survival of a pup. So after that five to six week nursing period, um, the pup is weaned and then the mother just sort of abandons it and returns to sea to feed because obviously she's... She's been fasting for six weeks. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's like, see ya. <laughs> I'm a, hungry. Um, and at this time of weaning, pups generally weigh between 500 and 100 kilos, which is 110 to 220 pounds, which is pretty big, pretty big animal um, for being five to six weeks old. And it's during this period from when they get left by their mother until about two years old where they have the lowest survival just because, you know, they're they're on their own, they just are abruptly um, independent and they have to learn how to forage and they have to find the best habitat and, and things like that that just um, causes them to have a lower survival during that period. But then after that, you know, after three to four years and up to 17 years, that's when survival is highest. And then, you know, after that 17 year mark, um, they're starting to get older and their survival declines. And actually the maximum lifespan that's been recorded is 28 years, which is, is pretty old. Is that 28 years in captivity or in the wild? Do we know? 
No, that was in the wild. Okay, yeah. it's pretty impressive. Um, but generally, like I said, after that 17 years, their survival starts to, cl- to decline more. Um, and actually, go- going back to the, the low survival of pups during that first year or two, um, actually one study found that even though pups grew in length, so they're obviously you know, getting older and reaching adult size, during that first year, they actually lost 10 kilograms just because of their lack of experience in foraging. And so that sort of demonstrates why they have a lower survival, just because their condition is is going downhill because they don't know what they're doing, basically. Talk about um, a very stressful time period, you know, for there's just a lot of stress on an animal. You know, all these yeah, yeah. variations in size and weight. Yeah. Um, so what does the female do after she just abandons her pup? So as you know, as we can imagine, she goes back out in that ocean and she is eating. That is what she's doing. So she feeds and she regains the mass that she lost kind of during lactation. And then um, the poor thing, she's just back to mating again, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the poor so she's, fat- <laughs> she's fattening up and she's getting ready to mate once again um, to kind of go through that whole cycle again. Um and uh, yeah, and then after after mating, she actually goes about five or six weeks after mating. She uh, the terminology is she hauls out uh, back to the beach to to molt basically, and where she remains on the beach for about ten to fourteen days. So what does this molting entail? Well, it entails that they shed their upper layer of skin and fur, and this is actually really important. Researchers have found that's pretty important for the replacement and cycle of. Um, Hair, fo- uh, hair follicles so it's pretty essential for their uh, physiology but um, that's a pretty interesting image of uh, you know these seals kind of just showing up and shedding a layer of skin simultaneously what do you think about that Jonah yeah I never really I, I really tried to find more information on this process just because I'm interested in the physiology of it and I I couldn't really f- explain I couldn't find a, a, a paper or a source that explained why they're doing this obviously um you know your your hair follicles have to be replaced and i guess because other land mammals and and us you know we're just constantly doing that because we don't live in an aquatic environment for them they i think they have to do it all at once because if they don't then it could you know compromise their thermoregulation or, or something like that but it's pretty gross if you look it up. Um, they just like slough off all this old dead skin and hair and it's sort of like a brownish layer. Um, and now that I think of it, I've seen harbor seals doing it, but I didn't really look close enough and realize that they were shedding their their skin and their hair. I just thought it was like, oh, there's a brown harbor seal and there's a gray harbor seal. They're, they're just different colors. <laughs> But I, I didn't know that they're actually molting. Right. They're the reptiles of the uh, of the mammal world. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's really bizarre. You, you know, people that people should look this up cuz um, it's like it's one of those gross things that you just can't look away from. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so how many pups did you find out how many pups are born annually? Yeah, so in recent studies um, in the whole population, there's about, um, you know, again, it, it varies between islands, but overall, there's about 200 pups that are born each year. 
um, which isn't a isn't a lot, especially because most of them aren't going to survive because they have a low survival rate during the first couple of years. Um, and you know, females that are that are breeding, they're after 15 years, they're they're going to after they're 15 years old, fecundity is going to decline. They're going to start to have less less pups. So there's really this um, this short window in their life, especially if they live to be 28 years old, in which they're producing pups. And since they only give birth to one pup each, you know, every year and a half or however, you know, in that period, um, it's a really slow population growth. Um, so speaking of, you know, we kind of talked about reproduction behavior, but um, some of that, you know, to give our listeners a little bit of an example of their kind of general behavior, if you will. Um, so, you know, a lot of uh, video cameras have actually been deployed on males. And um, so these kind of, I believe they're critter cams. Is that correct? Yeah, by National Geographic. All right. That, that's right. Yeah, they, um, they sponsor a lot of projects and they hand out a lot of uh, these critter cams, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so these um, video cameras deployed on the backs of these males actually uh, ended up showing that most of their time, well, actually not most of their time, but they they end up spending about 34% of their time resting, which a lot of male mammals end up doing if we look across the, <laughs> the animal world. Um, about 9% interacting with other seals. So these are some pretty antisocial seals. Uh, they do not like messing around with other seals. And then the rest of their time, which is about 57%, is you know mainly foraging and traveling, uh, which you know makes sense, you know, keeping their body healthy and whatnot and feeding. Um, did you know that they can hold their breath up to 20 minutes? And even a critter cam uh, that was deployed on one of their backs actually showed that they were uh, resting on an underwater ledge for up to 10 to 15 minutes. That's That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's kind of weird that they would just, like, hang out on an underwater ledge for that long it seems like it'd be physiologically it'd be stressful but i guess that's just what they do um yeah (laughs) who knows you know if we could get in the minds of animals um we would learn a lot um anyways but during this time like like camden's just said you know they're spending 57 percent of their time foraging and traveling um and actually i found this report that used a kind of an interesting technique to look at movement. Um, There's this report by the Pacific Islands Fisheries Science Center and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And, you know, if, you, if you've listened to our um, episode on technology, we talked about um, radio telemetry and GPS telemetry and, you know, being able to track animals. And actually, I think Mariana mentioned... You know, you can't just put a collar on a seal, and we didn't even plan that because we didn't have this topic picked out yet. But um, it's true, so you have to get creative with how you're going to be tracking them. And in this study, um, they actually used visual sightings of marked seals. So they went out, um, they, they did tag adults, but mostly they were tagging pups, and they put on um, unique tags, identification tags on their flippers so that it has a certain color or number or whatever, and so you could differentiate between individuals. And they analyzed data over a 30-year period. Um, so over that 30-year period, there were 4,438 monk seals that were marked, and 
using visual sightings, um, which I should also say because they mention this a lot in this report, that there's a lot of biases um, when you're doing this sort of marker sight, especially in the ocean, especially in remote islands. So, especially for visual example, sightings, yeah. Yeah, in the, in the main islands, because there's more people, there's probably going to be more sightings than in the northwestern islands where there's not a lot of people, and most of the people that are there are only there seasonally for for other work, bird work, or what have you. Um, and then so that just creates different um, detection probabilities between areas. And then even the marking rate is different because um, there's different amounts of seals on the beaches in the different areas. So, you know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of issues and biases that they addressed in this paper, and if you're interested, we'll, we'll include a link in the show notes to this article so you could look at more of the, um, the issues with this analysis. However, they basically were just trying to get a rough idea of how these seals are moving um, in the archipelago. So of those little over 4,400 seals that were marked, they recorded 1,161 movements or spatial data points of 373 individuals, which is a small percentage of over 400 and over 4,400 um, individuals marked. So just because they're living in the ocean and they're living in remote areas, there's just a low recite rate. Um, and they found that about 10% of the females in which their birth site was known, so like I said, most of the seals that they're marking are pups, so they know exactly where that pup was born because they stay on that beach for five to six weeks. Um, 10% of these known pups um, were recorded giving birth at non-natal sites. So in other words, 90% of females returned to the same site that they were born at when they were going to give birth. So really high site fidelity, um, which creates some issues their conservation you know if a beach is you know, if there's some development on that beach or there's some disturbance and then they have to find a new place to go and pup um, and movements between the northwestern islands and the main islands were pretty rare um, 10 different seals made 14 trips between the regions um, but even though they're rare that's just of the marked individuals um, but there, you know, there is still some exchange between those areas, which is which is good for genetics and um, just expansion of the population, you know. Um, and then movements between the main islands were common, um, and actually some individuals were even seen on four different main islands. So they're they're moving um, between the main island chain compared to in the northwestern islands where they're sort of sticking around a single or, you know, one or two islands. Um, and unlike most animals, um, they found that adults were moving more widely than young. Um, so for most animals, it's the juveniles that are moving greater distances, greater distances when they're dispersing, you know, going to establish their own territory and, and get away from their, their natal range. Um, and they didn't really explain why that was, um, so not sure why juveniles were moving. I mean, less. we could it probably might take a few guesses. Yeah, it probably yeah, it might have to do with their inexperience, something like that. Yeah, you know, that kind of like um, they have like a more delayed period of development 
and so therefore maybe they're not in a position to be able to migrate like that. So, you know, something that yeah, we need yeah. to look into more differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that's sort of a summary of the movements of animals of the monk seals um, in the archipelago. Do you do you want to tell us about um, non-natural movements or translocations, which is part of some some conservation efforts? Yeah. So you know, with the idea in mind of kind of moving around the you know the the gene pool, there's been a lot of you know translocations. Um, so uh, if we refer back to one paper that was, if you, if um, if readers are interested in checking it out, it's called um, "Translocation as a Tool for Conservation of the Hawaiian Monk Seal," and that was by Baker and all back in 2011. Uh, so in the paper, basically about I would say 247 roughly uh, seals were transloc- translocated between 1984 and uh, 2009, uh, with different aims in mind um, and throughout different regions um, and islands. Um, they found out that there was a strong correlation between age and the time a translocated, uh, translocated seal remained in the vicinity of the release site. Um, so kind of to give further detail, they found that 70, um, uh, they counted 72 pups uh, that were dispersed with an average of about 42, 42.8 uh, days post-release. Um, and then 90 pups actually stayed in the vicinity of the release and um, for the remainder of the season. So some are moving and some, you know, a good majority are actually staying. Um, and then, then they found that the males moved from the northwestern islands uh, to the main islands and dispersed among the main islands. Um, except for one that moved back uh, more than a thousand kilometers back to the northwestern islands. So a pretty determined individual. Um, and, you know, kind of, uh, there was no uh, adult females actually that were translated, ca- translocated. Uh, and we probably can infer that that was based on the fact that they're so important and they're so um, critical to a population. So they probably didn't want to necessarily uh, change that, uh, you know, kind of um, break that equilibrium, you know, with the females and the reproduction and the population growth. Um, they found out further that no difference, there was no difference between uh, in sur- uh, survival between translocated and non-translocated pups. Uh, so they're talking about like a 43 to 45% survival, whereas adult males are about 90 to 97 survival, depending on the region. So the, one, again, it's kind of hitting the hammer on this one, but, you know, it's that, ex- you know, inexperience uh, for the, you know, the pups that definitely uh, decreases their survival rate. Um, so something also to keep in mind, you know, for their conservation. Um, and these translocations ha- um, were aimed at preventing human conflict. And um, the trans- uh, and these ones in particular, sorry, were more successful than interventions in which um, seals were causing the problems. So they noticed that if, you, you know, if they were um, kind of being a little preemptive and moving them, it, there was a better chance for them to survive rather than seals that already were you know, problem seals, if you will. Uh, so that's, you know, that's pretty interesting. Um, so kind of, you know, as we've been alluding to the um, conservation, um, just, you know, for talking numbers, pure numbers, uh, there's a little bit, there's actually limited data um, that suggests that the population peaked, at, you know, peaked back in 1958 with about 1,600 to about 2,000 individuals and some aren't necessarily sure. Uh, but they were looking, uh, when that, uh, population count was done. Um, they were looking at uh, one, they actually found one thousand five hundred forty one um, subpopulations um, that were found on the that were counted right on the beaches on the northwest islands. 
so cumulatively, the overall population has uh, declined since then, although trends vary um, between subpopulations. Um, so, you know, we're kind of looking at a um, declining percentage, unfortunately, and that percentage number is about 3.9 uh, per year overall. Um, so, Jonah, do you think you could talk us a little bit about the threats that our beloved Hawaiian monk seals are facing? Yeah, so there's a handful of them, um, and I'll just list them off and then go into more detail. So, first off, we have food limitations. Um, second, we have entanglement in debris, marine debris. We have shark predation. We have disease. Um, we have intraspecific male aggression, which we already talked about a little bit. And then we have intentional killing and harassment by humans. Um, so the, the food limitation, the threat of food limitation is a pretty complex one. Um, and to give you an idea of how it's complex, um, on the main islands, the pups have large sizes at weaning. However, the fishing pressure is higher in the main islands. So you would expect when fishing pressure is higher that there's less food available for females and then pups are going to be smaller when they're weaned. But that's not the case. They're actually larger when they're weaned in the main islands despite there being a higher fishing pressure. Um, in the northwestern islands, there's a smaller weaning size, but there's less fishing pressure, especially since 2006 when that... Um, protected area was established by the Bush administration and a lot of fisheries were closed back then. So, it, you know, the, it's kind of confusing um, these, these results from these studies because it's not what you would think um, it is, like the weaning sizes versus the fishing pressure. Um, but like I said, in the, in the Northwestern Islands, you know, lobster and bottom fish fisheries have been closed since 2006. Um yet still, there seems to be some issue in which, which is causing the pups to have smaller weaning sizes. Then, you know, in addition to the fisheries, part of it, and fishing pressure, you add in climate change, which is known to negatively affect other pinnipeds um, by reducing food availability and, and lowering mortality of seals. So, for example, um, for the Hawaiian monk seals, Food availability for juveniles appears to be a primary bottleneck. Um, since during the 1990s, juveniles had a large weaning size but had low survival. So there, there's something about, it probably has to do with the sensitivity of that period in their life, um, which is why food availability seems to be the bottleneck. But then um, following El Nino events, juvenile size was greater, and so they don't really understand um, the, the dynamics of the, the climate and the survival of, of juveniles. So, uh, you know, again, the, the food limitation issue is, is pretty complex, especially as the ocean conditions are changing and, you know, that's influencing food availability in addition to fishing pressure. And so it's just kind of a convoluted threat. Um, Just to go back real quick, you had mentioned that uh, climate change is known definitely to affect other pinnipeds. Now, when we were doing the research and kind of corresponding back to each other, didn't you have a specific, I can't remember the species of pinniped that you had in mind that was significantly 
affected by it wasn't the south african yeah the cape fur seal off the uh, southwestern coast of africa there was actually i forget when it was but there was a a big population crash because um the ocean conditions particularly temperature changed and that changed the availability of prey and it just caused a huge die-off in the fur seals there so that's just an example of how climate change can negatively affect um, pinnipeds. Um, next, we have the threat of entanglement, which the Hawaiian monk seal actually has one of the highest entanglement rates of any pinniped. And when we're talking about entanglement, we're talking about seals getting caught up in marine debris, um, you know, trash and plastic and fishing gear, um, which is actually a chronic form of pollution in the northwestern islands. And over time, there hasn't really been a reduction in marine debris, and neither has there been a reduction in seal entanglement rates, even though there's active efforts to clean up the debris in the ocean in that area. Um, so it's a big threat, and I, I think plastic is going to be showing up in a lot of our episodes. If you haven't listened to our, our plastic episode, go back and check it out, because um, the monk seal is just one example of hundreds of species that are known to be negatively affected by plastic. Um, and, you know, the, in the increased use of plastic fishing lines and nets makes pose, pose it an even greater threat, a growing threat, rather, to the Hawaiian monk seal. Um, and unfortunately, the Hawaiian archipelago is situated in this convergent zone of currents and wind that basically causes all this debris from around the world to build up around the islands, um, which is probably why they have one of the highest entanglement rates of any pinniped. Um, for the Hawaiian monk seal, pups are the ones that are most often entangled. Um, you know, so even though they make up the lowest proportion of the population, immature seals account for about 80% of entanglements, which is pretty sad. Um, between 1982 and 2000, a minimum of 2.3 serious injuries or deaths per year were attributed to fisheries-related debris. And then in 1999, which is sort of when the highest um, rates of entanglement was observed, about 1.7% of the population was reported entangled. I think 1999 was just a dark year for Hawaiian seals because we'll see later among seals as we go on further on. It seems 1999 seems to re, you know show up a couple times. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but fortunately, like I said, there's um, the Marine Mammal Research Program is actively cleaning up debris despite it being a you know seemingly there being a seemingly endless source of this debris that, like I said, that just converges on these islands. Um, but between 1980 and 2007, this program disentangled 162 seals. Um, however, when they, you know, when they find a seal or someone reports a seal that is entangled on the beach or in the water, they have to catch it in order to, you know, disentangle it. Um, so during this period from 1980 to 2007, even though they disentangled 162 seals, an additional 69 escaped without being able to be disentangled which is unfortunate and we we don't know their fate yeah and that's probably you know if they did die it's probably you know it's pretty painful and suffer you know suffered a lot so that's that's really too bad and so you know plastic we're gonna be 
we're going to be definitely throwing that in all podcasts, I think, at this point, huh? Yeah, I, I think so. It's 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 a it's apocalyptic really yeah exactly you're totally right um for our, so you know we uh for our listeners we did we actually in our life history we haven't uh, gone into too much predation uh explaining you know who are the predators for the hawaiian monk seal um for a lot of pinnipeds um it's sharks and this still uh, stands true for um hawaiian monk seals uh, shark predation is pretty a pretty big deal um so uh, you know, of course, this is a natural um, phenomenon, you know, predation, um, but it's a serious threat, and especially to pups, and that kind of goes back to that whole deal that, you know, pups, pups are all of a sudden independent, and they're not necessarily aware of, you know, their instincts aren't as developed, as well developed for, um, you know, predators in the vicinity and getting away from them fast enough. So um, that's definitely a big issue for population growth is shark predation. Uh, predation. Um and so this, uh, so afterwards, um, well, afterwards, I mean, after you know, realizing this, a lot of um, removal of sharks has actually occurred, um, and therefore um, the the overall predation has declined since there was a peak back in nineteen ninety seven and nineteen ninety nine, and that was a that's a purposeful uh, removal of sharks to kind of give uh, the the monk seals a chance to bounce back a little bit. Um, so continuing on with another threat, disease, uh, you know, since there's a lot of uncle father seals out there, there's going to be a little bit of disease, <laughs> uh, that comes along. Um, so small populations, low antibody levels. So therefore low genetic diversity to make, um, and which is a serious threat because, you know, with low genetic diversity, there's uh, lower chances of being able to fight against different diseases, as we all know. Um, so one epidemic could actually even cause major population crashes, and this is a, you know, a fear for a lot of endangered species across the world. Um, so uh, this still stands true for the Hawaiian monk seal. Um, there's also a high potential for livestock and other domestic animals um, to spread diseases, as well as human diseases, um, to spread from the main islands to the main island seals to the northwestern islands. Uh, with more people and more animals on the island, there's more chances of the seals coming in contact with diseases that, that their you know their body can't fight off. So this is a big, pretty big deal. Um, and and since 2001, actually, um, 11 seals have died from what we call toxo toxoplasmosis. So what is uh, toxis, uh, toxoplasmosis? It's um, disease called uh, disease caused from a single cell parasite. Uh, notably called Toxoplasma gondii. Um, so any mammal really can get Toxoplasmosis, but come to find out, uh, only cats can spread it. Yet <laughs> um, <laughs> again, cats are the at the nucleus of problems um, for the environment, uh, you know, domestic cats. Um, so cats introduce the infectious form of the parasite into the environment through their feces. Um, so, you know, we're thinking principally of you know, outdoor cats. So the eggs and the feces are then washed into the seas, um, and then they work their way up to the food chain, you know, by accumulating. Um, and once they get into the, you know, once they're ingested, uh, they make their way to the 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 toxic how it forms toxoplasmosis. It's it, it it makes their way to that digestive tract, and then multiply it multiplies until cells begin to burst. Then it moves on to the liver, brain, muscle tissue. So it's attacking the whole entire body of the the monk seal. Um, and so at this point, the monk seal's uh, immune systems, you know, are weakened, and vital organs begin to fail and shut down. So leading to death. Um, 
So although toxoplasmosis has been known in marine animals since 2000, the, occur uh, the concern has been increasing over uh, the level it is found in some species, even like otters to this, you know, other species that we're noticing these tendencies of toxoplasmosis, um, you know, getting to other kind of aquatic mammals. Um, so once an animal has toxo toxoplasmosis, the, it is incurable, but it is something that's not inevitable. So there's things that we could be doing to put, you know, we could be putting parameters in, uh, in place to kind of uh, hinder, um, you know, seals and other uh, species coming in contact with um, that parasite, such as keeping cats indoors and sterilizing the ones that go outside. Um, just to give people, you know, figures, you know, just on the Oahu uh, Island alone, there's 350,000 feral cats. So what do you think about that, Joe? I know you got a lot to say about feral cats. <laughs> yeah, we don't have enough time. We will 100% sure be doing an episode on outdoor cats because like plastic, they are one of the biggest, um, you know, threats to wildlife. And who, you know, we, we know that feral cats are outdoor cats rather, not just feral cats. Outdoor cats kill billions of birds each year and, and they can really negatively affect bird populations and even drive them towards extinction. Who would have thought that outdoor cats could be negatively affecting a seal? Um, you know, that just shows how, how far the consequences cascade with these outdoor cats. And, you know, I think that plastic and feral, or plastic and outdoor cats, rather, are a, the biggest, some of the biggest issues because you can only, um, you can't force, you can't change other people's behavior. You can't force people to not use plastic or not have outdoor cats. And so it just requires a lot of education. And in this case, you know, seals dying from outdoor cats, like that's a pretty, that's a pretty crazy connection. And I think that as time goes on, we'll probably find more connections of the negative effects of outdoor cats. So that's all I'll say about it now for now. <laughs> yeah. So what else, what else are we dealing for threats? Yeah, so like we already touched on, we have the intraspecific male aggression. Um, so when they're fighting with each other or aggressive towards females or pups, um, they're lowering the survival of pups and females. And, you know, when pups and females are dying, then you have a male-biased sex ratio, which is why in some cases males have been the focus of translocations just to move them away from um, particularly the northwestern islands so that they're not negatively affecting the population growth in the, in the northwestern islands. Um, and then finally, we have the threat of intentional killing and harassment by people. Um, a lot of native Hawaiians don't actually believe that monk seals occur naturally around the main islands. Um, they and that just has to do, right? yeah, they, th they think they don't occur naturally there. And that has to do with, um, you know, in recent history, they haven't been, they haven't occurred there just because they were wiped out. And also even before they were wiped out, they just occurred in lower numbers because there was more disturbance from people. So there's not a lot of um, monk seals in their, in their culture and, they're not talked about a lot just because they were never that common since people colonized Hawaii. So they think that they don't actually naturally occur there and that 
the government introduced them there, which is probably a result of them learning about translocations, which I don't know why. What would the government stand yeah, what's the to conspiracy gain? that the government would, you know, game up on them and to throw seals yeah, at like, them? <laughs> they're just, they'd just be spending a lot of money. Um, anyways, so unfortunately there's that, um, you know, people have that attitude and that lack of understanding. Um, but they're also viewed, the seals are also viewed as competitors by fishermen, um, and they claim that they're, you know, hunting all these f- fish that they like to fish, like the one pr- particular species that uh, is the hole hole fish, which locals claim the, they're competing with monk seals for. However, critter cams actually show that the seals don't even hunt that species of fish. And they also, the cameras also showed that they have really low hunting success. So it's not like they're going in and wiping out a reef like these fish right, like think. most predators you know you know we think that predator you know of course predators are apex predators but the, like like you said you know it's not always a very guaranteed kill and whatnot so it's kind of goes back to that same human wildlife conflict you know we kind of you know go to the side that you know they're killing off all of our you know our their competition they're killing our game so you know that's you know something that needs to be you know education and outreach could you know help you know education and whatnot yeah and Unfortunately, in recent years, um, monk seals have actually just been directly killed because of this negative attitude towards them. So obviously the monk seals are going to haul out and hang out on a beach near where they've been feeding. And then the fishermen go to fish in that area and they think that the monk seals are wiping out all the fish in their favorite fishing spots. And so they just beat them to death or... um, I read that, you know, people have speared them and stuff like that. And there's actually a, a New York Times article that we'll put in the show notes that is called Who Would Kill a Monk Seal? And it really details this issue of of human-wildlife conflict with the monk seals. Um, and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that because it's a, bi- it's a big and growing issue. And this New York Times article really goes into depth about it. Um, so do you want to do you want to tell us about the the levels of or the types of protection that the monk seal actually has legally? Yeah, sure. Um, so you know, as you know, we can imagine, is an endangered species. So they are listed on the Endangered Species uh, Act. They were listed back in 1976. So they benefit from protection from that legislation. And they also benefit protection from the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, so what does this uh, kind of translate to? Well, actually, before I get into that, um, and so that's on a federal level and on a state level, they're protected by Hawaii's administrative rules. Um, I believe it's 13 through 124, and um, that's entitled uh, Endangered and Threatened Wildlife, and that's basically basically um, based on uh, upon regulation regulation 18 of the division of their division of Fish and Game, which is a de- you know part of the Department of uh, Land and Natural Resources. So that's how they kind of manage. Um, endangered Hawaiian monk seals. Um, so within the protection, there was a Hawaiian uh, monk seal recovery team that was established by NOAA back in 1983. And uh, so in 1983, um, there was a recovery plan that was put together. And then there was a revised recovery plan back in 2007, um, which kind of updated the objectives and whatnot. And so the current objectives are definitely to improve female survival. Like we said, they're kind of the, the crux of 
everything, you know, the whole population surviving. Um, and then also reducing shark predation. We touched a little bit on about that. And captive care for injured and malnourished seals to, you know, give, you know, more number, you know, to increase the, the numbers of monk seal. And also to remove uh, hazardous debris. So kind of going back to what you said, you know, the, uh, what was the name of that? Um organization that goes out yeah that goes out and cleans up the the, the the marine mammal research that goes out and cleans up the debris so that's kind of another example and so if our listeners are interested on actually going and consulting that recovery plan uh, feel free to go on fisheries.noaa.gov and you can find loads of information you can go and view um the recovery plans and critical habitat and uh speaking of which um Touching upon critical habitat, um, the critical habitat in the main Hawaiian, line, Hawaiian islands includes a uh, where the populations, the the different uh, groups are found for that one subpopulation. There's a terrestrial land buffer of five meters that starts from the shoreline going inland, and then there's a uh, 200 uh, meter um, buffer zone that goes from the shoreline out to sea, but um, only if you will, only of that 200 meters is a 10 meter high corridor that's actually protected. So if you'd like to imagine it, uh, you have a seal that's leaving the shoreline, and then if he follows the contours of the you know the sea floor topography, only 10 meters uh, from the sea floor is actually protected. And I know that's kind of confusing, so I believe Jonah will be posting a uh, a little bit of a like a figure explaining that, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a really good graphic that explains the the cross-section view of their critical habitat that um, we'll include in the show notes and then I'll also maybe post on Facebook just so you you have an idea of um, the the critical habitat for the species. Um, The critical habitat in the northern Hawaiian Islands is very similar, keeping those, you know, 10 meters short uh, from the starting at the sea floor, uh, uh, 200 meters heading out from the shoreline and then five meters back and uh, going inland. Um, so they keep the same measurements, if you will. Uh, but all beach areas, sand splits and islets are also protected. Um, and zones include Pearl and Hermes Reef, Midway Atoll, French Frigate Shoals, uh, Nahoa Island. Um, and then on the main Hawaiian lines, we're looking at Hawaii, um, Kuja, Maui, basically all of the islands at some point. Um, so yeah, so what are some of the active programs that are happening right now, Jonah? Yeah, so the, the Hawaiian monk seal research program is basically involved in everything, um, having to do with the monk seals. You guys can look up their Facebook page. They have a really great Facebook page that they keep updated about what they're doing and, um, just monk seal news and things like that. So, you know, this, this program is the one that's actively studying the ecology of the monk seals. They're monitoring the population. They're involved in mitigating human conflict and mitigating the other threats. Um, They're involved in rehab, translocation, in order to enhance survival. So basically they are the entity that is helping to um, accomplish the objectives in the recovery plan. So again, I recommend you check out their Facebook page and and their website because there's just a ton of resources that they have about the Hawaiian monk seal and, and then their current efforts to help recover the population. And for those who are still interested in you know doing some more reading, 
um, when doing the research, I came across a pretty neat paper. It's called Social, Socio-Cultural Significance of the Endangered Hawaiian Monk Seal and the Human Dimensions of Conservation Planning. So that was written by uh, John and Kittinger, Tristan uh, Bambico, Trissa Watson, and Edward Glazier. So feel free to look that up. It's very interesting, especially um, kind of going back to our main theme, that human interface. And so to see what you know the cultural, social cultural implications that the endangered Hawaiian monk seal has. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, um, I think that about wraps up the Hawaiian monk seal. If you guys want to learn more about the Hawaiian monk seal, um, like I've been saying, we'll have links to some of these articles and um, this information in the show notes. Um, if you want to listen to some of our other podcasts, you can find episodes on our website, which is conservationchronicles.podbean.com. You could also download episodes on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Overcast. And you can check out um, our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. I'd like to thank Camden for being my co-host today, and hopefully we'll have him again in the future. Aloha!